the Bible out, we're going to be in John, I'm sorry, Matthew 26 and John 20. If you want to look in those two places, um, that's where we're planning to be today. I hope there's not a lot of popping on my microphone. It's borrowed equipment. We sent the other one off. So be patient with me. I'll try to move real slow. Um, anyway, so we have one more week in this series, What's So Great About Jesus? And then it's just wheels off. I mean, who knows what I'm going to come up with after that, right? Um, actually, I can tell you that as I've been praying and thinking, we've, we have landed on a mission statement for our church. I'm going to teach through that. And then the following week, I'm going to teach through our values. Um, and so please plan on being here. It'll be not next Sunday. Plan on being here then too. But the couple Sundays after that, we're going to be going through that stuff and uh, would love for you to be a part of that. Hey, let's pray together. And we'll jump in today. Just agree with Jay's prayer, Lord. Pray that you would um, speak through me. And Lord, I love it that when we open your word, that you meet us in it. And so that's my prayer today, that you just meet us as we spend some time in Scripture and look at what it means to be, for you to make us courageous. Lord, that... Uh, you would, you would strengthen us, you would encourage us, that you would speak to us. Pray that for each person here, that wouldn't be me, it'd be you speaking to them. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So when I think about courage, about uh, fears, you know, that, that's what we battle is, we have courage to battle our fears, right? And I think about anxiety and worries, and just to be very candid with you. I feel like I hear more about anxiety and worry and fear than ever before, which is kind of ironic because we live at a time of greater wealth and greater prosperity than we've ever experienced. Like I looked at several studies and none seemed to hit the mark, and so I'm just going to make some casual observations for you. You can get anything you want, anytime you want, any color you want, if it's food in the grocery store, you can find out if it was grass-fed or corn-fed. You know, you, we, there's not any limit to what we know and what we can get and how we can have it delivered. I have a friend who's sitting in here today who has been known to favor a Longhorn Special Number 4 from Top Notch along with two corn dogs to his home. And they bring it. And it's wonderful, right? But we have all of these things at our fingertips. We can do whatever we want, anytime we want. And yet, we find ourselves fearful and anxious and filled with anxiety. And I just wondered, like, how can courage that the Lord has for us help us in that? Early in my sales career, um, very early in my sales career, I faced uh, one of our greater opponents, one of my chief competitors, at a very competitive deal for this one type of forklift called an order picker, where the operator goes up with the forklift, picks cases, and puts them on the back of the, like right behind them where the forks are. He builds a pallet, goes around, picks cases to fill people's orders. Well, the competitor's order picker had a different front end than ours did. And there was a reason that we had changed ours. There was a specific reason. And I knew what the reason was, but as a you know, really green sales guy, I wasn't ready for the challenge. I can remember the day that I had to go in and kind of fight this battle with this customer and try to convince them um, that I drove around their building like three or four times. You know, because I was afraid. 
And I knew that like they were going to ask the question I didn't want them to ask, and I didn't know if I had a good answer. I didn't know if my answer made any sense. Sort of like I was today before I gave this message. I just drove around America. I'm just kidding. But anyway, I, you know, here I was. I was trying to build up the courage to go in and face this. And I didn't have, you know, I hadn't been in doing it for five years or ten years, and I knew what I was going to say when they said something or just react to whatever objection or just tell them the reason why we do what we did and why it's still, you know, none of that stuff. I just was brand new, green. I didn't want to mess up. And I had all of this anxiety about how it was going to go. I lost, just so you know, I lost that deal. But the guy had a really weird voice, and my boss and I made fun of him forever, so it was kind of a win. And I went on to sell other forklifts to other people, and uh, so it was okay. But what I learned in that moment of facing my fear and going in was this. Courage can be acquired. Uh, I hope that doesn't keep happening. If it does, I'll change. Um, anyway, courage can be acquired, right? God wants us to have courage. All through the Bible, fear not, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Like the Lord wants to give us courage. Joshua 1.9, this is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So in the face of today's worries, and I found this to be interesting, some of the top things people worry about, pollution, climate change, corrupt government. I thought, what a waste of time to worry about corrupt government. It's corrupt. Stop worrying. Sorry. It's true. Money, financial future, kids, career, social media. Do you know, this is one thing I ran across this week, one in 20 people have some sort of social phobia, meaning they don't want to be around crowds of people, they're worried about what people say about them online, something, some kind of social phobia, one in 20. I found that to be fascinating and prevalent. But here's what I want to tell you today. Jesus offers courage. He offers us courage. And courage, as uh, my friend Daniel Hunter, the coach at Anderson, we were talking about this this week as he took Anderson to face Westlake. They didn't go so well. But you know what? His boys were courageous, right? To go face somebody bigger than them, somebody with a better record than them. They took courage, right? Just like all the things that we do throughout our week takes courage. And Daniel said this. His brother, who used to be in the military, was in some sort of special ops deal and went on a lot of things. He said, courage isn't the absence of fear. Courage is learning how to acknowledge and deal with fear. So what better person to look at, in my opinion, in Scripture to see the transformation in their life than Peter, right? Like we know Peter is bold and brash, making big claims. He's the one who got out of the boat, you know, when everybody else stayed in the boat. Hey, I want to walk. You're walking in the water. I want to walk in the water. I didn't think about what he was asking just did it. He's what we like to call the ready, fire, aim guy, right? Immediately responds and then thinks about what he said. So I want you to think about him kind of at the height of that. He spent all this time with Christ, and here we are at the end of Christ's life. We're going to pick up the story in Matthew 26, verse 31, and watch what Peter does. On the way, Jesus told them, I'm sorry, I don't know whether that, that, Jesus says, on the way, Jesus told him, okay, that makes sense to me now, sorry. Tonight, all of you will desert me, for the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. 
But after I've been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Peter declared, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. Jesus replied, I'll tell you the truth, Peter. This very night before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. No, Peter insisted, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all of the other disciples vowed the same. You see, there's no hesitation. He makes this bold claim. And then in the face of it, like, let's think about what just happened. Here's Jesus, who's raised Lazarus from the dead, who's fed 5,000 plus people on the shore. And he's done miracle after miracle after miracle. And he says, no, you're going to deny me. Peter runs right through that barricade too, right? And he says, no, 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 I'll never deny you. Even though Christ has just told him that he would. No pause, no hesitation. And like, what do you think the disciples were thinking? Can you picture them? Like, because they say, oh, yeah, 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 me too. I won't deny you either, right? So like Peter's drugged them in. So he's a leader. Peter's a leader, right? And Christ knows he needs to change. And so that's part of what's going on and what's happening here. But he's brash, which isn't courageous, really, right? Like this brash boldness that Peter has. It's not really courage. It's untested. It's immature. And it's incomplete. It's not substantive. James 1, 2 through 4 talks about how we're changed and tested in fire and trials. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. And I know you all do that, and I do that too, that every time troubles come, I'm like, oh, this is a great opportunity for joy, right? For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow, so let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. So how does Peter compare to Christ? Let's think about that for just a second. On this same night, in the same set of circumstances, Christ has gone into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's asking his brothers that he's lived with for the last three years and done ministry with and walked from place to place and shared all this truth. He's like, he's clearly anguished as he's about to go to the cross, and he's praying. And you know the scene that he prays, and it says he, he prays so hard that blood drops from his forehead. So here he is in this time of anguish, distraught, broken, weeping, overwhelmed at what's coming his way, right? But he faces it. Do you see, like, he doesn't need a redo or a restart. He's ready when they come. Let's look at on down in Matthew 26 at 44 through 46, I want you to see his resolve after he's gone to God three times and asked him, hey, if you want to take this away from me, go ahead. But he finally gets up, and he comes to the disciples and says, go ahead and sleep. He'd been asking them to pray, and they kept falling asleep. But have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. Do you see the difference? Do you see how that's courage, right? That Jesus is meek, and he's humble, and he's mild, and he hasn't taken the bait his whole ministry. But yet he's had these moments. Like I was talking to somebody this week about, can you just imagine like what it was like when he was ready to feed the 5,000? That there's 5,000 men, it says, and then there's women and children. So let's say there's 10,000 people there. Who knows exactly, right? But there's a big crowd of people, and there's this little bit of panic that's going on on the shore. 
as he's been teaching all day and there's no place for him to get food. They don't have favor, okay? And so as they begin to panic, he's like, tell me what we have. And so they collect, you know, the fish and the loaves. And there's not much. And then in a moment, like, there's this little verse where he says, tell everyone to sit down. Like, that's gutsy. Do you agree? Like, he knows what he's about to do. With, he's about to do something great with nothing. Right? But it's that thing. It's that tell everybody to sit down. Like, he's totally in command. He's not a jerk. He's not abrasive. He's just supremely confident because he knows what he's about to do. Same thing's here. Here he is. He's been crying and weeping and asking for the Lord, his father, to take this away from him. And he gets a no. And so he comes out and says, all right, let's go. Let's do. I know. I'm going to face being mocked. I'm going to face being whipped and beaten and spit on and pierced. And I'm going to hang to my death. He gets it. He knows what's coming. He's aware of the prophecy in Isaiah 53. He knows exactly what's coming for him. And yet he says, all right, let's go. Peter, though, has made these brash claims. And then while Jesus was praying, he was sleeping. And then as they take Jesus, we find in verse 57 and 58, then the people who had arrested Jesus led him to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the religious law and the elders had gathered. Meanwhile, Peter followed him at a distance and came into the high priest's courtyard. He went in and sat with the guards and waited to see how it all end. Peter's around. He's trying to do the right thing. He's following behind, right? Others have fled. Apparently, John or Matthew, somebody's around recording what's happening. So there's others nearby, and Peter's one of them. He hasn't completely fled, but he's keeping his distance. Let's go on to read. Meanwhile, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came over and said to him, you were one of those with Jesus, the, the Galilean. But Peter denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Later out by the gate, another ser servant girl noticed him and said to those standing around, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, Peter denied it. This time with an oath. I don't even know the man, he said. A little later, some of the other bystanders came over to Peter and said, you must be one of them. We can tell by your Galilean accent. Peter swore a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Suddenly Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows, you'll deny, me three, you'll deny three times that you even know me. And he went away weeping bitterly. So here's Peter. He's totally broken. Like, you know, we would say in the golf tournament language, he folded up like a cheap suit when the pressure came on him, right? He just disappears. He's not faced by the Sanhedrin or the temple guards or Roman centurions or a gang of anybody. Servant girls have made the accusation. And granted, if he had said yes, the people in the courtyard might have turned against him. But still, servant girls made the accusation, and he denies Christ, which you know. But I want you to see that Peter's transformation into a courageous disciple and apostle begins right with the resurrection. He loves Christ. He misses him. And even though he's denied him, when there's an opportunity to find out what's going on with Christ, he's one of the ones who runs after him. 
We're going to flip over to John chapter 20, okay? In John 20, verse 3 through 9, it says this. Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. They were both running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Okay, in a minute, we're going to talk about in Acts 14, 413, that they're going to refer to Peter and John as ordinary men. This is a very good example of that. Ordinary men are very competitive, right? And John wants you to know that he and Peter had a race to the tomb, and John won. Right? That's just guys being guys. That's all that is. Not only did they race there, but he beat them, and he put it in the Bible so he'd know. And it goes on to say, right, he stopped, he stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived. Do you get that? Not only did I beat him, like I was there looking around, caught my breath, had some Gatorade, and then Peter showed up. Slow fisherman. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up, lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. And he saw and believed, for until then, this is what I want you to catch, for until then, they hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. So all of a sudden, all of this stuff that Jesus had prophesied, all the scriptures that they knew because they grew up in a Jewish community and had been taught from the time they were old enough to comprehend, all of it began to make sense. All of it began to click for them. So beyond knowing that John's faster, we know they understand the scriptures. We see that Peter, we see in just a little bit that Peter will preach these scriptures and acts. Everything's starting to make sense for them. But what about Peter? He had this close relationship with Christ and he's denied him three times. Surely he doesn't feel whole with Christ even though he knows he's resurrected and he knows he'll see him, I bet. He's still probably struggling internally. And so um, he's got to face that. So we pick up the story after Peter goes fishing. He goes with John and James and Nathaniel and Thomas and two others, it says, as we look down in John 21, verses 15 to 17. The, the story kind of sets up like this, is that Peter's gone out fishing with these guys. They've fished all night and not caught anything. Jesus shows up and says, hey, try the other side of the boat. He yells from the shore, hey, you guys, you catch any fish? No. All right, try the other side of the boat. They do. They get this huge catch, just like that, right? And so John says, it's Jesus. That's Jesus on the shore. And Peter, you know, jumps in the water and swims to shore. And, and, and Jesus serves it. He's got breakfast cooking. Where Jesus got the fish? I don't know. It doesn't say that. But after, after breakfast... Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I mean, isn't it incredible that Peter denies Christ three times? And three times he asked him if he loves him. And right there, like I, that's why I wanted you to know, it was with John and James 
and Nathaniel and Thomas and two others, it says. It's in front of his crowd of buddies. Like everybody knows Peter's made the bold, brash, hey, I'll never deny you. And then he didn't just denied him that night, right? And so what does Jesus do? He needs this guy to lead. He's the leader, right? Like when Peter goes fishing, these other seven guys go with them or six or however many it was, right? So he's got to restore Peter. Peter's going to lead the church. He's made this claim. Probably they're very uncomfortable as they sit around the fire. But here the resurrected Christ is asking Peter, do you love me? And they know what he's doing, that he's trying to restore Peter. But it works. Because as we flip the page and go into the book of Acts, we begin to see Peter leading everywhere that we go. In Acts chapter 1, verse 15, he's leading the conversation about, hey, we need to replace Judas. In Acts 2.14, right after Pentecost, right after the Holy Spirit, they had stayed in the room, as Christ had told them to, and prayed. And after about 10 days, the Holy Spirit falls. Right? And it's this crazy scene, and all these people are coming around because it's Pentecost, and everybody's in Jerusalem. Sorry. And Peter preaches to the crowd. He preaches this incredible gospel message where he references scripture from the Old Testament and applies it to the life of Christ and what Christ has done. And 3,000 people come to faith that day. Is that incredible? And, and remember how it said that the scriptures made sense? Well, now he's preaching the scripture to people and saying, no, it's Christ. He's the one who fulfilled the scripture. And you must all repent and put your faith in him. And people do, and they're baptized. And we have a church. The church that you and I go to started that day. In Acts 3, he heals a lame man with John and then later is preaching in the temple so effectively that the leaders, the Sanhedrin, they get their guards to go arrest him and he spends the night in jail. And then in Acts chapter 4, they bring him out and they're talking to him. And he's now preaching to the council, right? The same gospel message he's preaching to them that he had preached to the people when 3,000 people came to Christ. These are the people that sent Jesus to die on the cross. Like, so whatever he was afraid of the night that Christ was dying, he's not afraid of it anymore. He's been transformed with courage. Here's just like a snippet of what happened that day as he stood in front of the council, the people who could do the very same thing to him that they did to Christ, have him crucified, right? He says, let me clearly state to all of you, he's telling them, and to all people of Israel that he was healed, talking about the, the lame man that he healed, he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. The man you crucified, that's a little inflammatory, would you agree? The man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. How about that? For they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. It goes on to say in verse 19, when they tell Peter, hey, we just, you know what? Just don't talk about him anymore. 
we're going to let you go because we don't want to cause a scene, but just don't say this anymore. And he's like, should I obey you or my father in heaven? So like, I can't imagine more of a bold transformation than what's happened in Peter, but he's got this crazy courage now because he's seen and been with the risen Lord and he knows the truth. His perspective shifted, right? I think one of the things that we see is that he had been with Christ, right? That that was one of the things they noticed in him. And if you'll notice back at the very beginning of the story, maybe the second verse I read to you from 57 and 58, that Peter fell into trouble right there where it says, meanwhile, Peter followed him at a distance. See, proximity to Jesus matters, right? If we're following close behind and trying to do all the things that we know Christ wants us to do, we will stay out of the trouble that we will fall into if we're following at a distance. Right? See the difference in Peter? As he's come into contact with Christ, he's been transformed and changed. When he was back at a distance, he was fearful. His perspective has shifted. I want to read a passage from 1 Peter where we hear, this is now Peter who's been gone through all these crazy experiences and acts, and he's now writing to encourage others in their faith as his life, he knows, is winding down. The beginning of his book, 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. And I also want to encourage you that Peter and John were kind of running buddies. And you can look at John's gospel, verse, I think chapter 20, verse 31, if I remember correctly, when he talks about why he's sharing scripture. Like, I'm telling you why I'm telling you all the stories is so that you'll believe or look at 1 John 1 in the first chapter and listen to the passion in these guys' hearts who had been with Christ and how bold they are in the claims that they make and the courage that they have because of what Christ has done in them. So here's what Peter has to say. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus from the dead. Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead. Even though you must endure many trials for a little while, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ revealed to the whole world. You can see that like Peter's life has totally been transformed. His level of courage, this isn't brash boldness. This is like a courage that's founded on truth based out of experience. I love the quote. I'm going to try not to mess it up. But I've heard somebody say before that a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. Right? Peter and John and these guys, they're men of experience. They'd have experienced Christ. They're not worried about what the Sanhedrin, who are way more scholarly and way more you know, trained than they are, they just know what they know. Right? Like they in their bones. They've seen it, and they know it, and they believe it, and they've got this courage that's evident. And they know, as he talks about heaven and the day that will come, that the things that we see 
while they're powerful and they have impact on us, are not greater than the things we can't see. That's where their perspective has shifted. They begin to live not just for here, but for here, because they know what's coming. They have the courage of Christ, and they encourage us to have this courage of Christ to face all trials, just the way Christ did at crucifixion, that he first pours his heart out. He's broken. He's weeping. It's okay. We're fearful people. That's why I think it's like over 300 times if you combine the phrases of fear not, don't be afraid, you know, don't fear. If you put all that stuff together, it's like over 300 times that's in Scripture because we're fearful people. But we don't have to be afraid. We can go to our Heavenly Father and gain the strength that we need to walk through our circumstances. We can also gain courage by seeing Jesus and by being with Jesus. I can't, I can't overstate that. I can't tell you how many times in my own experience I've sat at my kitchen table concerned, worried, fearful, kind of beside myself, whatever the circumstances were, facing something big. And as I began to read scripture and I began to pray, the Lord began to change my heart and change my confidence level. You see it in Psalms with David. He's trapped in a cave running for his life. And he'll start several Psalms out crying out to God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you done this way? But I'm going to praise God. And then you get this bold ending to these Psalms. The Lord wants to do that in us every day. If we will just take him the things that we're worried about, the things that we're fearful of, Peter and John don't have the market cornered. Like it's available to us. We too can get that same courage, the courage that comes from Christ. We don't just have to hang on and hope for the best. We can ground our concerns and worries and fears. We can lay them at the feet of Christ. Like Jesus, we need to get away and cling to the Lord, and then he'll begin to remind us of something incredible that's coming for us, that we have something great to offer, the situation that he's asking us to walk through. If we just show up, sometimes that's all it is. And his light shines through you and me in a way that we can't explain, we can't prepare for. It just happens because it's him at work in us. He's able for whatever he's taken you through, he's able to walk through it. So I just want to ask you this. I want you to consider what is it that you're afraid of? What is it that holds you back? What is it that is the constant challenge. Are you willing to give that fear over? Like, are you willing to lay that fear at the feet of the cross? I want to encourage you today. Jay is going to come up and play. And I want to just give us some time to pray about that. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to share it with your neighbor, if you're willing If you're not willing, it's okay. But I would love just in twos, maybe threes. Let's not leave anybody out. We're the church. We can love and pray for people. And Christ can move, okay? Now listen, you don't need to tell them the whole story, right? You're praying to God. He knows the whole story, okay? You don't need to tell them how you're related to the ant or you know what I'm saying? Like, you you can just say, I'm afraid of the dark. I'm afraid of snakes. I'm afraid of my boss. 
whatever it is. And just let them bring light because that's what happens when we invite Christ in. Light comes in. And light changes everything. I just want to give you that chance that like this morning, that fear cycle can be broken. Right? That because when we say it, when we speak it to one another, it's out in the light. We give it a chance. We give the Lord a chance to move in it. So as, as Jay plays, if you guys, y'all just stand. You can stand. And I want to remind you what I started this out with. Psalm 27.1 says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation, so why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress, protecting me from danger, so why should I tremble? Will you guys pray for each other? Just pray just quickly. I'm going to give you a couple minutes. So one person pray for one and the other pray for the other. But you all do that quickly. We're going to have a couple minutes to do that. Pray light into the darkness.